Our second Bible reading is Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne him a child, but she had an Egyptian slave woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Then he had relations with Hagar, and she conceived. And when Hagar became aware that she had conceived, her mistress was insignificant in her sight. So Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I put my slave woman into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was insignificant in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Look, your slave woman is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's slave woman, from where have you come and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. But he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live in defiance of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees me. For she said, Have I even seen him here and lived after he saw me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Berad. So Hagar bore a son to Abram, and Abram named his son to whom Hagar gave birth, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you've just heard, Abraham and his wife Sarah are still called Abram and Sarai at this point in time. But during the sermon, I'll call them Abraham and Sarah because we're more familiar with those names. Please join me in praying for God to be with us. Let's bow our heads. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Father, we want to hear Jesus' voice. Please, by your Spirit, would we hear it now through the preaching of his word? And would we then follow Jesus to the glory of his name? Amen. In 1825, Anne Judson, an American missionary to Burma, fell severely ill with a tropical disease. At the time she fell ill, 
She was caring for her baby Maria, who was around six months old, and also her husband Adoniram, who was in prison and who depended on Anne to bring him meals. Anne's sickness confined her to a mat in a small, uncomfortable room for two months. She was unable to breastfeed baby Maria and she couldn't visit Adoniram. Here's her description of those two months. Our dear little Maria was the greatest sufferer at this time, my illness depriving her of her usual nourishment. By making presents to the jailers, I obtained leave for Mr. Judson to come out of prison and take the emaciated creature around the village to beg a little nourishment from those mothers who had young children. Her cries in the night were heartrending when it was impossible to supply her wants. When in health, I could bear the various trials through which I was called to pass, but to be confined with sickness and unable to assist those who were so dear to me was almost too much for me to bear. And had it not been for the consolations of religion, and an assured conviction that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I must have sunk under my accumulated sufferings. I'll read those final words again. Had it not been for the consolations of religion, and an assured conviction that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I must have sunk under my accumulated sufferings. Anne Judson believed that God saw her in her distress. She believed that, quote, every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy. Let me ask you this question. If you had been in Anne Judson's position, would you have had the same confidence? Would you have believed that God was lovingly watching over you. It seems right to say that we need to be built up in this area of discipleship. 21st century Christians need to grow in our confidence that God sees us. He's watching over us, even when we go through trials that seem too much for us to endure. That's the message of today's passage, Genesis chapter 16. There is much in this Bible chapter that's uncomfortable. You may have felt uncomfortable when I read it a moment ago. And we will tackle those difficult issues along the way. But the heart of the passage is the name given to God in verse 13. You are a God who sees me. You are a God who sees me. If you'd agree that you need help with trusting that God is watching over you, even in your trials, then you need the message of Genesis chapter 16. We'll start with verses 1 through 4, and we'll give this section the heading, Vision Lost. Vision Lost. Let's look down, please, to verse 1 on page 11 of the service program, and I'll read from there. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne him a child, 
But she had an Egyptian slave woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The background to those verses is a promise God had made many years earlier, before Abraham and Sarah arrived in Canaan, which is where they've been for 10 years, according to verse 3. Before their arrival in Canaan, God had promised Abraham that he would become a great nation. But to become a great nation, you've got to start somewhere. You need at least one descendant. And yet throughout Abraham and Sarah's marriage, Sarah has been unable to have children. That problem was flagged up for our attention all the way back in chapter 11, verse 30, where the writer of Genesis says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. So ever since chapter 11, Sarah's barrenness has created a tension in the narrative. God's promise to Abraham can't be fulfilled so long as Sarah, his wife, remains barren. With that background in view, with that tension in view, Sarah goes to Abraham with a plan. She says in verse 2, See now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Abraham listens and goes along with her plan. Some of us may have seen the Emmy-winning TV show The Handmaid's Tale based on Margaret Atwood's novel. In the show, an evil totalitarian regime has taken over America, and because of widespread infertility, the regime forces fertile women to become child-bearing slaves known as handmaids. The regime justifies this horrifying practice on the basis that something like it is found in the Bible, with one example in this very passage. But when we look closely at this passage and the whole of the rest of the Bible, it becomes abundantly clear that Abraham and Sarah are acting wrongly. The Bible is describing without approving. When the Bible describes an ancient custom, that doesn't necessarily mean it endorses that custom as a good thing. Slavery, which is also on display in this passage, is another example of a practice described in the Bible but never endorsed as God's design for humanity. We don't have time this morning for in-depth study of the Bible's teaching on slavery or marriage, but if we did, we'd see that slavery and this kind of forced exploitative marriage are products of sinful human desires. They don't belong to God's original creation plan. Even if all we had to go on was just this passage, we could tell that Abraham and Sarah's conduct is viewed negatively by the writer of Genesis. Their build a family through Hagar plan leads directly to relational strife involving all three people that any reader can easily see is an unhappy mess. Biblical storytellers don't usually come right out and say, he was wrong to do X, she was right to do Y. Instead of that clunky, in-your-face kind of storytelling, biblical storytellers use more subtle ways to communicate that wrong turns have been made and 
uh, mistakes have been made. They use the show, don't tell approach. And this relational mess in verses 3 to 6 is a, a classic example of that. Instead of saying, don't do X, the writer of Genesis is, is saying, look what happens when someone does X. Another subtle way in which this Bible passage criticizes Abraham and Sarah is through a hard-to-miss echo of Genesis chapter 3. That's the chapter where Adam and Eve turn away from God and his goodness by eating from the forbidden tree. They're both at fault in different ways. Adam is at fault because he listens to Eve instead of listening to God. God says to him, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, God says. The point absolutely isn't that husbands should never listen to their wives. There's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Esther, about a king rightly choosing to listen to his wife. My own life would be a deeply embarrassing shambles if I didn't listen to Betsy day after day. Instead, the point back in Genesis 3 is that Adam sinfully listened to Eve instead of listening to God. And here in Genesis 16, not many Bible chapters later, we find at the end of verse 2 that same listened to the voice of formula, the exact same words in the original language. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. That echo of Genesis 3.17 is the writer's subtle way of flagging up to Bible readers that Abraham is listening to Sarah instead of listening to God. God has given plenty of instructions and information to Abraham by this stage, but he's never said anything about having a baby through Hagar. Abraham is listening to Sarah instead of listening to God. Such a bad sign after Genesis 3. There's yet another way in which this Bible passage criticizes Abraham and Sarah's exploitation of Hagar. The passage shows us that it was all totally unnecessary. There was no need for Abraham and Sarah to build a family through Hagar because her child isn't the child of promise. Later in the passage, in verses 10, 11, and 12, God speaks to Hagar about her son's future, and the details in those verses don't match up with the earlier promises to Abraham. Hagar's son isn't the one God had promised. And in just a few chapters' time, that is put beyond doubt when Sarah herself becomes pregnant and Isaac is born. But even at this early stage, the writer of Genesis wants us to see that having a baby through Hagar was a bad call because on top of all the other reasons, this child doesn't fit the bill of the promised child. So this child doesn't actually solve the problem, the tension raised back in verses 1 and 2. When the Apostle Paul talks about this passage in his letter to the Galatians, he points out that Abraham turned to a human solution for his problem instead of trusting in God. Abraham took matters into his own hands, looking to human resourcefulness instead of divine power. Human solutions are not always wrong. I'm grateful for the two Pfizer 
vaccine shots that went into my left arm. But in this case, in this very special case, Abraham and Sarah should have waited for divine intervention. God had told Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, through the nation that would descend from him. If Hagar had been a key part of that plan, God would have told him that too. So in verses 1 and 2, we find a loss of vision. Abraham and Sarah have taken their eyes off God. They're treating this world as their own theatre of operations and not as the theatre of God's purposes, which is what it is. They've taken their eyes off God. Let's move on at this point to the next section of the passage. We can title this next section, Vision Distorted. Vision Distorted. I'll start reading from verse 4. Then he had relations with Hagar, and she conceived. And when Hagar became aware that she had conceived, her mistress was insignificant in her sight. So Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I put my slave woman into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was insignificant in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Look, Your slave woman is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Did you notice the references to sight in those verses? At the end of verse 4, the narrator says, Sarah has become insignificant in newly pregnant Hagar's sight. Sarah notices this new way in which she's now seen by Hagar, Sarah says to Abraham in verse 5, when she saw that she had conceived, I was insignificant in her sight. Then in verse 6, Abraham tells Sarah, your slave woman is in your power, do to her what is good in your sight. Those references to sight are all tied to warped, sinful behaviour. Abraham and Sarah's loss of vision back in verses 1 and 2 has led now to their and Hagar's distorted vision. When human beings take our eyes off God, our vision gets distorted. We need to see things the way God sees them. When we ignore him, we don't see things rightly. Imagine a baseball game where everyone ignores the home plate umpire, treating him as if he's not there. Instead, the players try to enforce the rules of the game themselves. After two two minutes, the pitcher says, that was a strike. The hitter says, it was a ball. Then all the fielders rush to the mound and say, it was a strike. The hitting side pours out of the dugout and says, it was a ball. The managers shout in each other's faces. The next thing you know, punches are thrown and there's a full-scale brawl that makes the national news. Baseball players need to keep their eyes on the home plate umpire. And in a similar way, we need to keep our eyes on God. Things fall apart when we act as if he's not there. So it shouldn't surprise us one bit to find Hagar unjustly looking down on barren Sarah. Sarah unjustly blaming Abraham when the scheme was her idea. Abraham unjustly giving Sarah permission to treat Hagar however she wishes, and Sarah unjustly 
treating Hagar so harshly that she flees from the household. When human beings take our eyes off God, our vision gets distorted. We need to see things the way he sees them. Thankfully, like an expert eye doctor correcting someone's faulty vision, God intervenes. Our heading for the third and final section of the passage is vision received. Vision received. In verse 7, we're told that Hagar, fleeing from Sarah, has reached a spring on the way to Shur. Shur was located between Canaan and Egypt, which means Hagar, who was Egyptian herself, according to verse 1, is traveling back to her homeland. Now, if you know your Bible geography, you'll know that the territory between Canaan and Egypt is the Sinai Desert, a dry and dangerous wilderness. So Hagar is a, a pregnant woman alone in a vast desert. It's a picture of desperation. But then God steps in. Verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Somehow Hagar knows she's seeing an angel who represents God. She says to the angel in verse 13, You are a God who sees me. Later in the verse she says, Have I even seen him here and lived after he saw me? She sees God and God sees her. This is a vision-correcting event. In verse 8 at the start, of their meeting, Hagar tells God she's, she's fleeing from Sarah. But by the end of their meeting, she's on her way back to Sarah in obedience to God's command in verse 9. And that's good for Hagar. You can tell going back will be good for her because in verse 10, God says Hagar's descendants will be too many to count. Yes, it's true. Her child won't be the child promised to Abraham, the child who gets that world-blessing nation underway. But even though she won't be the mother of that child, any pregnant woman in the ancient world told that her descendants will be too many to count would think she's hit the jackpot. Those details about her son in verses 11 and 12, which sound troubling to us, may not have sounded so troubling to Hagar because they reveal that her son Ishmael won't be a pushover. He'll be fiercely independent like a wild donkey. And that may well have sounded impressive and attractive to Hagar the slave woman. Seeing God and being seen by him is good for Hagar. It restores her vision, her hope for the future. It's life-giving. And the life-giving goodness of this event is captured in the name given to the well. If you look down to the start of verse 14, you can tell from that, Therefore, that the name of the well is connected to everything that has just happened. It's called Beer Lahai Roy. And very helpfully, most English Bible versions provide a footnote with a translation of that name. Beer Lahai Roy means well of the living one, the one who sees me. Well of the living one, the one who sees me. There's a very down-to-earth, non-spiritual way to understand that name. This is a well in a desert where water is absolutely essential for survival. If you see it, if you see the well, 
you'll live. Well of the living one, the one who sees me. But there's more going on here than just the satisfaction of natural thirst. Hagar has seen a vision of the living God, the one who sees her. The well's name speaks of that experience. Well of the living one, the living God, the one who sees me. For Hagar, that well was where the living God saw her. Not in a distant, God sees everything and everyone kind of way, but in a personal way. He had seen her situation, her desperate situation, and he had come to help her. In the Bible, seeing can have that sense of gracious intervention. Well of the living one, the one who sees me. It's time for us to think about how this Bible passage should shape our own lives. A rule of thumb that I always find helpful is that the meaning for us now is the meaning for them then made suitable for our period of salvation history. The meaning for us now is the meaning for them then made suitable for our period of salvation history. So what was the meaning for them then? Genesis is one of the five books described in the Bible as the writings of Moses. So we should think about the meaning that Moses was trying to get across. Moses led the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. What did he want those first readers and hearers to pick up from this passage? What was the takeaway for them, for those Israelites? They were oppressed people fleeing in the direction of Canaan from their nasty slave owners in Egypt. It's, it's the exact reverse of this passage. In this passage, an oppressed person flees toward Egypt from nasty slave owners in Canaan. Think how stunned those Israelites would have been to hear about God dealing graciously with Hagar. Surely the takeaway for them was that if God sees, sees an Egyptian fleeing slavery in Canaan, will he not see his own people fleeing slavery in Egypt? Remember, the promises given to Hagar were not as grand as the promises given to Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites. If God makes promises to Hagar and watches over her to fulfill those lesser promises, Will he not watch over his own people to fulfill greater promises, the promises they bear? That's what the Israelites with ears to hear would have understood from this passage. And it would have been a very encouraging message for them. It would have been so reassuring to learn that their God is a God who sees them. When we bring that meaning to our own period of salvation history, it has the same will he not logic. If God watched over Hagar and the promise-bearing Israelites back then, will he not also see us in our trials? In our period of salvation history, we can see that Abraham's nation did indeed bless the world because it gave the world Jesus the Messiah. He offers the world redemption through his death and resurrection. And he'll return to live forever with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Like God's promise-bearing people in the desert, 
we trust in the promise of a better future. And while we wait for that future, will God not see us just as he saw Hagar, just as he saw the Israelites in the desert, safely guiding them to Canaan? Yes, he will. Of course he will see us. When Anne Judson lay on her mat in Burma, consumed by sickness, unable to breastfeed her six-month-old baby, unable to bring food to her imprisoned husband, she trusted that God was still watching over her, as we heard at the start. And she was right to have that confidence, because our God is a God who sees us. There's no greater proof that he sees us than the redemption he provided through Jesus, his son. When the Son of God entered our world, he was the victim of humanity's lost vision, our distorted vision. He suffered unimaginably as he hung on the cross where he received the punishment for sin so that we could be forgiven. We know God sees us because he lovingly sent his son to meet our greatest need, our need for forgiveness. If you're hearing this and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, please do that so that all your wrongdoing will be forgiven. We've been thinking about the, the confidence we can have that God sees his people. As we finish, it's important to grasp that this message is challenging as well as comforting. In this passage, we find Abraham and Sarah failing to live in the light of this truth about God. When Sarah said to Abraham those words in verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, Abraham should have said, God sees us. He's watching over us. If he wants us to take a different approach, he'll tell us. But Abraham didn't say those things. He listened to her plan and did as she said. They treated the world as their own theatre of operations and not as the theatre of God's purposes. And even though God graciously continued watching over Abraham and Sarah as his promise-bearing people, that loss of vision on their part had bad consequences for them and for Hagar, as we saw earlier. We can't assume God's care for us means he will always stop us sinning or always cushion us from the consequences of our sins. If we take our eyes off him, our vision will be distorted and that will have consequences. So let us keep our eyes fixed during the coming week on the living one, the one who sees us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know how quickly our eyes turn away from you. We know how quickly we start to act as if you're not there. We pray, Father, that you would correct our vision. Bring our eyes back in your direction. We thank you that you are the living one who sees us. Thank you for seeing us in our greatest distress through your provision of Jesus 
to die for our sins. Help us to trust confidently that you see us in our trials. We pray that would bring us great comfort. We pray that when we are undergoing trials, those trials would not cause us to lose our vision, to lose sight of you. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.